There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So it's Truth and Movies special live edition today. Shape of water sprinkled with fairy dust and possibly shot through fairy liquid. Guillermo del Toro's fable has critics wetting themselves. What do we think? The Mercy, fairies cross it. Now comes the movie starring Colin Firth as the plucky Brit who sets sail for solo glory but finds himself alone and way out of his depth but can't back down even as he sails to disaster. If only there was a topical analogy, eh? <laughs> and a Russian winter, a bitter divorce, missing children. Get those sides strapped up nice and tight for Andrei Zvyagintsev's Loveless. All that plus there will be blood as we give Blade 2 the film club treatment. It's Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. On Truth and Movies today, special live from Shoreditch edition, we have esteemed editor of Little White Lies, David Jenkins. Hey, hey. And make his debut... Today, in exceptional circumstances, Matt Thrift, noted uh, contributor to Little White Lies and general film blogger. Yeah, and yeah, bits and pieces. Are there still yeah. bloggers? I don't know. Do they still exist? I lost mine in oh, a right. big disaster. <laughs> what happened to it, Matt? It was a Google disaster. My accounts all got hacked and then it just vanished. Who would hack someone's blog? I have no idea. They obviously end it. I don't want mine, let alone somebody else. The Russians. Yeah, uh, it's the Russians. Yeah. Now, here are some people who have been in touch. By the way, should you ever find the need to contact us, you can do so at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com, that's the email address, or at LWLies on Twitter, or there's a Facebook page as well. Uh, we were inviting your comments on the Phantom thread. Sean Hanrahan of Brooklyn says he thoroughly agrees about all the unanimous love for it, but please, for the love of all things holy, stop referring to his earlier film as Boogie Nights, because it's pronounced Buggy Nights. Did you know that, David? Buggy nights. Buggy, buggy nights. as in like a, a buggy. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. But so please, boogie no Bug, more. Buggy. Thanks, says. But I think Fishorn. if you pronounce buggy, I think because he's American. Yeah. How would a, an American pronounce the word buggy? Bug, bug, buggy. Yeah. Bug, it might be a slight difference in how we say and how he's saying. All right, we'll move on. David Fairley yes. says, I loved the ghostly story episode with David Lowry. A bit early for this re request, maybe, but with Brad Anderson's new film, Beirut, out in April, maybe it would be a good chance to revisit The Machinist in Film Club. Who's seen The Machinist? Oh, yeah? Is that worth checking out? I watched it last week. Really? Uh, yeah. For the first time? Or, or? No, no, for the eighth, maybe. All oh, right. <laughs> it's fantastic. So that's a resounding. Uh, it's, it's one in which Christian Bale... Ghost in. Yeah. It's the first one where he kind of, you know, 
speed diets for, for money. Beirut, of course, the trailer uh, incurred such controversy because of its uh, supposedly stereotypical treatment of... Uh, oh, it's that? Okay. Yeah, no, that's right. Beirut. <laughs> yeah. Linda, in fact, I actually grew up in Beirut. Yeah? Yeah. How was that? It was interesting, actually. I was mugged for my action man. <laughs> no, no, true story. True story. That's uh, another podcast. I think. Yeah, <laughs> that is another podcast. This one, though, continues with Shape of Water. Shape of Water. At a top secret research facility in the 1960s, in Baltimore in the 1960s, a lonely janitor forms a unique relationship with an amphibious <laughs> creature that's being held in captivity. All right, it's mouth-watering stuff, judging from the trailer, David. How good is the film? Well, I'm a big fan of the film. I'm among the lovers. I understand there may be a few haters out there, um, which we can come to later, I guess. <laughs> I'm a big booster in general for Guillermo del Toro's films. In fact, weirdly, the one that I really don't get on with is Pan's Labyrinth, which is probably the one that is, is his most beloved. Because mm. um, I'm, I'm such a big fan of his that... You know, I, I'm, I try and sort of condition myself to like it. And what it do never, you like about it? It just seems like a kind of random series of events. Right. And, and then to have the kind of really brutal violence in it as well. And this film is kind of of a piece with that as well, actually, because it is this very lush fantasia. It's about a uh, mute woman who is the cleaning lady of a, at this underground research facility in America in the 60s. And... Um, there is a top-secret asset which is brought in and is of interest to these uh, scientists and security guards and, it turns out, Russian spies as well. And I guess I think the way he's pitched it is experiencing a science fiction movie from the viewpoint of a kind of peripheral character, someone who is kind of to the side of the main... of who you'd think of as being the main core dramatic people in the film the, the, mm. the, the main characters so the film is kind of from the perspective of sally hawkins character who's called elsa who is this yeah mute cleaning lady and she kind of has these aspirations to i guess I, I don't know she seems happy with her lot as a cleaning lady in a research facility but then when she comes into contact with this amphibious creature who looks like a man like a quite a strapping man played by um doug jones who is a regular Guillermo del toro a collaborator. He played Abe Sapien in the Hellboy films, and he also um, played the Fawn character in um, Pan's, uh, Labyrinth. Pan's Labyrinth. So um, they eventually hit it off, shall right. we say. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because it's very much set up like a fairy tale, this film. There's a narration mm. at the start which, which talks about a, a sleeping princess, and, and she meets her frog, if you will, and does a lot more than kiss him, but we won't go into too many details about but, that. It's... It, it, Sorry, Matt. Well, I was just going to say, I, I mean, you know, that the princess thing is, is kind of really interesting in that I think with this and with Sally Hawkins' character, Del Toro really kind of challenges the, the monopoly that Disney has always had on the, on the princess narrative. So instead of having these Stockholm-syndromed, dreamy, passive characters, this is a woman that has real determination and real sexual agency. This isn't a woman that's, you know, wishing that someday her prince will come. This is a woman that, as per her morning routine, is perfectly capable of coming all by herself. And she, he really gives a kind of voice to the... Literally gives a voice to the voiceless with this, which is, you know, with Disney, something that... You look at a little movie like The Little Mermaid, mm. where the character has her voice taken away in order and has to rely on her looks to 
Del Toro kind of turns all of these things on it and subverts these things. David, you mentioned there's a lot going on in this film because you've Mm -hmm. got the post-Cuban missile crisis paranoia, you've got the Soviet spies, you've got the uh, extraordinary uh, Michael Shannon doing his thing. So there's a lot of tension about his intentions towards the asset and her plan to unite with this this creature. And then you also have this extraordinary interspecies romance. Do you feel that all these elements put together, a hybrid almost as curious as, as the creature itself, do you feel that it, it walks and talks in a, in a satisfactory fashion? I was kind of sceptical about the film before I saw it and maybe... About half an hour in, I, I was very like, where's this going? What's this doing? Is this going to, you know, I, I was like unsure whether it was going to work. And by the kind of final, final sort of 20, 30 minutes, I was just absolutely, it, it just mm. won me over entirely. And, but you're very soppy, of course. I am very soppy and sentimental. And, and, and I guess there is a sort of sentimental streak in this film, but I very much feel it's, it's earned. So right. maybe that would make it not sentimental, but actually kind of just... Emotional, Matt. You're more hard bitten. I mean, I really like it. You really, really, like really, it. really like it. I mean, you know, it's it's what Del Toro's tenth movie, I think, and it just really feels like a kind of summation of everything he's been saying so far. And I think what's so you know talking about the, the all of the Frankensteinian elements that it kind of cobbles together from different genres. I mean, you know, you ever seen an interview with Del Toro or follow him on Twitter? I mean, he's this guy is so literate and so intelligent he seems to be able to take all of these disparate elements from 50s sci-fi to the old universal monster movies even the mgm musical and kind of stitch them all together but not in a way that feels like a pastiche like the artist or this kind of postmodern wink job that someone like a tarantino mm. might close to a wink job at the start close to a wink job at the start yeah um and yeah so i I mean i think he ties it all together really well i mean i I know that there are criticisms that you probably might be able to tell us a little bit more about about it being i wasn't as swept away but i'm just wondering has anyone here managed to i think you you said you have seen the, the shape of water could we furnish you with a microphone would you give us your thoughts i'm the same i'm a lover i think i'm a bit mushy as well (laughs) so I got swept up into like the loveliness of it and the story of it but I just think for me as well it was just so beautiful like the whole thing was a really beautiful movie to watch like even that final scene I don't want to give it away but in the rain just kind of summarized it all perfectly I totally concur with that I think one of one of the pleasures for me actually was was the technical aspect of the film like he's thought about you know the ideas in the film and the references in the film and what it's going to say, what it's going to be about. But then I'm just staggered at the amount of time he's obviously spent thinking like, how are we going to connect this shot to this shot? How are we going to move from this room to this room? How are we going to transition from this idea to this idea? And like, he's got a kind of visual device for everything. The camera will swoosh around and, and, and there'll be a crossfade and the colours will just melt into each other and you'll suddenly be in a, a new space and in a, in a doing something else and you know he just clearly spends massive amounts of time you you think if you crack his head open you'll just see the film in there because it's 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 all there you know he's so immaculately thought through so i get off on his kind of passion for everything i think Mm. so very few people don't like this film i just just happen to be one of them myself some of the like accusations not accusations but some of the the more critical readings i've i've read about the scene to go at it for being 
simplistic. And, and I, don't, I think it is really simple and really straightforward and not especially complicated, and it is unambiguous, but I think it's entirely coherent and cogent. It has its own kind of internal logic that everything just kind of feeds back into this simple idea, which is just about tolerance. And yeah, you may be able to summarize that, and it may not be especially ambiguous, but I think, you know, perhaps for a film that's talking about 1962 and that's talking about today, in a day and age like we have now, where, you know, from the very top down, we have these very explicit, boldly stated messages of hatred coming down, you know, what's wrong with an explicit, boldly stated message of love and tolerance and... What's so funny about that? Absolutely, man. So I'm <laughs> completely with you on that part. If we had to give it a one-sentence treatment to tell people what kind of film it is, would we say, oh. what, Beauty and the Beast meets the Creature from the Black Lagoon? Or what would you say? Oh, yeah, no, I would say something like that. Or yeah. just, you know... Sally Hawkins sleeps with the fishes. There you go, sleeps yeah, yeah. with the fishes. <laughs> <laughs> Magnificent. All right, well... But, no, we want to hear your... your yeah, right, we want to hear yeah. your okay, so, um, have any of you seen The Iron Giant, the Brad Bird animation? Mm-hmm. You've seen it. Yeah. It's a wonderful film, and there are many parallels between this and that, uh, in that it's set more or less at the same period. There's that celebration of a kind of golden age of Americana in terms of the design of the film. And there's an, another worldly agent which is introduced into an American person's life, a kid's life in, in this case. And there's all the military who react with suspicion and fear and come down hard and try and destroy this creature. I think Brad Bird's an amazing director, certainly early on, the first three films he made. Um, and that film, I think, has a real magic to it because there's so much chemistry between the kid and the Iron Giant, this robot that's arrived from outer space. And my issue with this film, quite simply, was I never felt the chemistry between Elisa? Elita? Elisa, yeah. Elisa, Elisa. And the fish. And particularly where the... And spoiler alert, the moment where they, she floods the entire apartment block so that they can consummate their relationship just for me was jaw-dropping in all the wrong way. <laughs> There's a so, right way for that to be jaw-dropping. There's yeah. a right way. And there are specialist channels for that kind of thing. But in this case, the, because I thought it was a beautiful film and I appreciated the amazing design and the loving care, and it's such a perfect film visually in terms of the way that he constructs a world. It's almost claustrophobic how perfectly he constructs this, this world that we then inhabit, mm. which is kind of 1962 Baltimore, but it's also not. It's another special place that are, you know, only he has the keys to and he sets this story there and it is magnificent the cast is great Michael Shannon always love watching him in a film but I just never got the spark of their relationship which is why for me I would give this high expectations but actually wasn't that bothered I'd give it maybe a, a three at the time and yeah maybe a three David what, what would your scores be so I'd probably give it like a, a four in anticipation I wanted to see this film and um, probably five five in enjoyment in retrospect because wow. I just I'm very keen to see it again. And... Super, Matt? Uh, the same as, as David's, yeah. Yep. I mean, yeah, pretty much to the left. This one here <laughs> is massively nominated for Oscars. How mm. many Oscars, uh, Oscars has it been nominated? 14? 14. 13 or 14. A lot of Oscars. It's a team. Yeah, I think it's 13. And Matt, you're all over Oscars. You're a big Oscar watcher. Yeah. And you think this is going to walk away with Best Picture, is it? Uh, I think it's going to win Best Director. Okay. I think I would put my money on that. I think Best Picture... I, don't, I think Get Out's got a really good chance at winning Best Picture. How do you feel about that, Matt? You know, it's, I liked that film. Like, you liked yeah, it? Yeah, I wouldn't give the Best Picture Oscar to it. What though. would you give it to? Phantom Thread. Okay. Or Call Me By Your Name. 
All right. Those, yeah. Or this. Okay. Or this. Yeah. <laughs> David, you never watch the Oscars ever. No. I have a kind of really fun ritual of well, it used to be getting up in the morning and then turning the TV on and seeing who won. But now it's getting up in the morning and turning Twitter on and see, seeing who won. So that is fun. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's 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 a personal brand of fun. No, no, no. no that's, <laughs> but you watch all the speeches then on YouTube. No, no, no. I don't. Like, I, I, that is literally my only engagement with it. I won't won't watch speeches or anything like that. I, I just don't want to be involved. Does anyone have any strong opinions over what should win Best Picture th- this year? I thought Three Billboards kind of started off as really. Um, it's kind of quite titillating. It's quite uh, well. It's quite shocking. It's really the the, the humour is really sort of in your face. And I think as the the film goes on, it becomes more and more mature and more and more surprising. Um, and I think that the, all the central roles are just outstanding. And I can't think of a single film that I've ever seen that even remotely compares to it in terms of the way it tells its story. It actually surprised me. Whereas you know most films don't really surprise me. Most films follow a reasonably uh, generic sort of uh, a process, mm-hmm. I guess. One of the things I really liked about this film is that I'd seen the trailer for it, and then I thought, oh, that's what that film's going to be about. And then I saw the film, and the trailer was actually just like the first 20 minutes, and then it goes off and does all this other stuff, which is kind of jaw-dropping. Super. OK, well, the, when are the Oscars happening, Matt? First Sunday in March, like 4th or whatever the first Sunday in March is. Excellent. After seeing the trailer for The Shape of Water, Kevin Smith tweeted, seeing something as beautiful as this made me feel stupid forever calling myself a director. Praise indeed, eh? Yeah, Do you want to make a rude I, comment I, now I, about I, Kevin I Smith? I concur with him on that. Oh, right, <laughs> Excellent. Next up, it's The Mercy. Dreams are the scenes of action. We don't do well to remember that. Single-handed race around the world. I've already sent him my entry form. Are you serious? Alone on a boat for nine months. You're either drunk or mad. Well, we should have another drink so that we can rule out madness. May I point out you don't have a boat capable of such a voyage? We're going to build one. Have you ever done anything like that before? That's the point. If I can do it, then so can the bloke who stares at the horizon. I'm putting in the money. What are you putting in? Everything else. I fooled myself into thinking we were just building a boat. I didn't think I'd actually have to watch you sail away. That's what boats do. Promise me you'll come home. Any sane man would want to pull out of such an endeavor. Leave your doubts with us here on the shore. Good luck, Daddy! Take your dreams out to sea. Yachtsman Donald Crowhurst's disastrous attempt to win the inaugural 1968 Golden Globe race ends with him creating an outrageous account of travelling the world alone by sea. One-sentence treatment for this, David? Grizzly man at sea. Grizzly man at sea. If that makes sense to anyone. So, OK, Matt has not seen The Mercy. Should he? And if so, why? He should maybe see half of it (laughs) Um, and then sort of walk out. Um, It's the story of... The the famous story of Donald Crowhurst. And it's, it's set in this kind of magical era where... The Sunday Times had the the kind of power and glory to be able to sponsor a round-the-world boat race, which seems kind of magical to me. Uh, um, And this guy, Donald Crowhurst, he's a bit of a kind of dreamer. Uh, What works as a... um, 
He's uh, got a small business, and they make. Yeah, he's a sort of he small businessman. He designs he... equipment actually for for yachting purposes, and I think that's one of the things he sees in this. And again, I think you get this from the trailer. He sees in this a way to demonstrate and give publicity to his innovations. The uh, the Navigator, which is a device by which uh, yachtsmen can pinpoint their location, and I think he's also swept away in that the, the whole notion of anybody being able to go out and kind of grab a an adventure, a dream. And it's interesting because at the beginning of the film, you've got Rachel Weisz playing his wife and he's got these two unbelievably cute little kids as well who, he's, who are really into what he's doing. And there's this sense that you think he's, that he's doing this as a way to impose his kind of, I'm the patriarch of the family and this is what patriarchs have to do. We have to, you know, we have to be manly and, and you know, yacht solo around the world. But actually, there's some, it, it's, it doesn't feel like that. He doesn't, it feels like he's doing it for this very kind of abstract reason, which he only realises at the moment where he's sat in the yacht in the harbour and he's about to set off. And it is that point where he's like, Joe Bluth fans will, will recall, I've made a terrible mistake. So, yeah. <laughs> um, is he like an, an eccentric or...? It's very much fudged about his eccentric nature. I mean, he's certainly a kind of affable chap and you know he's very kind of forward with people and you know he reaches out to all these people to get the his, tr- his tramaran made and so we were having a conversation before about how it's impossible to see any film now without seeing brexit analogies all, all over the place and, and and no doubt this is an issue which you've run into matt you were having this problem with darkest hour yeah which joe wright at a press screening came out and i mean he, said, yeah just got up and said not brexit not brexit not brexit before anybody had you know quite yeah, preemptively worried that they might see this in this film that he made about Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> Paddington um, 2, again, a lot of people have drawn parallels, and it's, I, I think it's really difficult to watch. No, seriously, they have. But uh, it's very difficult to watch this Paddington film. Paddington is Donald Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> in a sense, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, but this film seems to fit so clearly to a certain reading of the whole Brexit issue in that... Is he an eccentric? Is he a chancer? Is he a man who's essentially still living under that, under that kind of 50s delusion about what a British chap does, about that whole kind of Patrick Lee Firma walking out and doing crazy stuff and walking to the South Pole? Or being the right kind of chap who could show a bit of moral backbone and, and conquer the elements and indeed the rest of the world. So he dreams up this idea, and I think he also thinks it's going to be good for his business. But I think quite early on he realises that he's painting himself into a corner. And the kind of condemned man's shuffle with which he reaches the dock on the day that he finally leaves, I think speaks volumes about where he believes this voyage is going. And I I think Colin Firth does a pretty good job in this film, actually, of portraying that character arc Mm. from being the father in of kind of 60s Britain to his kind of utter unravelling when alone at sea for seven months. I mean, I almost wished the film ended at that point. Which point? When he gets on the boat? At the point where he realises that he's made this terrible mistake and that... But also, he's left himself no option because, as he again in the trailer says, I can't go home because I will have no home. He's effectively, to construct the boat, he has had to mortgage his, his home and his company. So he has effectively no way of going back. If he doesn't take part in the race, he will forfeit everything. And I guess beyond that point, so the, so the second half of the film is covering his you know, adventure, quote-unquote, at sea. It's based on a, on a book that was written about 
Actually, I can't. I don't well, he leaves don't a lot. Of, there are a lot of logbook entries. Yes. And probably we should leave it at that. Yes. But the curious thing is that I actually really enjoyed the second half, and you really enjoyed the first half. Yeah. We should just buy one ticket now and yeah. swap over <laughs> is he, this, this lost at sea bit, is, it, is he just like bobbing? Or is, no, there, is there like. No. So basically, what, the, my, my issue with the film is that someone's obviously said, right, we've got a guy alone at sea. That's really boring. <laughs> What can we do to like sex it up a bit? So there's so there's all these like him sort of going around like, what's that sound? Oh my god! I'm is it is it a dream? Is it a nightmare? Oh, is that my kids? Oh no! And uh, yeah, it's it's all very kind of like it turns into like psychological horror. And you're, it just... you're, you're so uncharitable. <laughs> I've had a hallucination on a boat before now, so I can I can testify to the veracity of the fact that he dreams he's seeing things. And the boat is it's terrifying, the kind of or, the oral soundscape of this. Well, it was Sorry, built by the guy, college, but the soundscape. Caravan is, maker, right? You yeah. It has yeah, that, like, that, you need to build a boat. Why yeah. you? <laughs> well, he knew the caravan maker. I mean, okay. th- to be honest, the whole thing is it's a kind of collage of, of, of well meaning, well intentioned, but desperately bad ideas. But if you're going to sail across the Atlantic, you wouldn't want a well meaning boat. And not would just you? around the Atlantic. <laughs> then you've got to go into oh, the, you've got to, right, I, I the roaring forces. I and actually all that. like that. The, the production design of the boat is, is great because it looks like some guy's done it down the shed kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Now, you, you're, you're mixed on this. Would you, would you recommend it? You said go and see half of it. Uh, do you know what? We haven't really talked about her, but I actually think that the key. Thing I really liked about the film was Rachel Weisz playing mm. his wife, and it is a kind of like she's at home and she's kind of pining for him. And uh, in terms of her character, there's not really that much to do. But I just think she's increasingly in films now the most interesting element of the films that she's in. And, and like she's often in not great movies, but I always like her in them. Like My Cousin okay. Rachel was another recent one where I thought she was amazing in it, but the film itself didn't really work. Not that good. Okay. I'd recommend it, but. Um, the director, James Marsh, his previous film, he did a film called The Theory of Everything, Theory of Everything about Stephen Hawking with Eddie Redmayne, which I thought was the worst, <laughs> really. Like, couldn't, yeah, clawing my eyes out watching that one. So I, I went to this one with a certain amount of scepticism, but I think it's definitely, yeah, there's some good stuff in here. I like the fact that it wasn't too Oscar Beatty, it wasn't, you know, a BAFTA darling film. Okay. And it hasn't got any BAFTA nominations. No, so. nothing. So there you go. It's, oh, it's achieved wrong. that aim. So. I, I enjoy it. I, <laughs> have you ever, um, if, if anyone here is, I mean, not many of us have set off in a homemade boat to sail around the world, but we probably all of us said we would be able to do something and found us, manoeuvred ourselves into a position where we effectively couldn't back down anymore because the loss of face would be too much and we go through with this hideous programme even though we're gonna end, we know it's going to end in disaster. Yeah. <laughs> and we've all lied about what we're doing and we've all lied about whether it's our ability to handle finances or whatever it is that we've, we've lied to, even the people closest to. And the way that eats away at you is something that is explored a lot in this film. So even though the sailing bit, that siren call of the sea, is not that universal a concept, I think the predicament that he finds himself in of having lied his way, effectively deceived people with the best intentions and put himself in a in an impossible position, I think, was I found really affecting. And that whole dissection of the loneliness that he feels, mm. being the only person who knows what's actually going on. So I would say that I wasn't expecting a huge amount, because I hate sailing, but I really enjoyed it. Maybe an Anticipation 3 and probably a 4 at the time. I would say probably Anticipation, all 3s for me, I'd all say. All 3s. Well, that's so, not bad then. Yeah. Oh, do you know, there's another film about, uh, about Donald Crow has coming out 
later this year. Yes. It's called uh, Crowhurst. Yeah, and I, I, from what I understand, it's more of a horror, psychological horror film. All right. Sharkest so, Hour. Yes. <laughs> uh, Save that. Next up, Loveless. So, Matt, give us a one-sentence treatment on Loveless. Life is shit, I guess, would right. pretty much covers it. I mean, this is... Specifically in this case? In Russia. So this is the fifth film from... <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Uh, one second. Yes. Are there any Russians here? Okay, carry on. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so this is the fifth film from kind of can darling and kind of pretender to the Tarkovsky throne, I guess, uh, Andrei Zvyagintsev. Yeah, I mean, it's two hours plus of oppressive, relentless Russian miserabilism about the breakdown of a marriage that was breaking down before, and now it's really breaking down. And there's a kid, 12-year-old kid, that neither of them want to take custody of, that they want to send off to boarding school. And then one night, this kid hears his parents arguing about about his future. It's a really moving shot at the beginning of the film. And then suddenly he vanishes, and the parents haven't, don't realise that he's vanished uh, until they hear it from the school. the school, I think mm. it is, yeah. And then suddenly they're off finding him. And that's that second act of the film, the whole kind of procedural element to it, which is this search party that is, is really great. And, you know, before I... <laughs> before maybe I am too mean about it. It's, you know, this, this guy can really bloody direct. I mean, he knows he's, as a, as a kind of master of form, he's, you know, he's really up there with the, some of the best working at the moment. However, I just think that for my money, I don't know, I think there's a certain pomposity perhaps or that comes with uh, getting into the can competition and then realizing that I now have to tackle these uh, great, big, existential, national themes of identity and cultural and social malaise. And he really, really goes for it. Perhaps not as much as the, as the one before, Leviathan, that he made a few years ago. But, I mean, he's described this. He was at the, he's been at the BFI this weekend and he introduced, because uh, they've got the big Bergman season on, introduced Bergman's film Scenes from a Marriage, which is this five-hour, six-hour TV opus about, about a marriage in trouble and all of the kind of waves that it goes through. And he's spoken about how that film kind of influenced this one. And also his favourite film being Antonioni's 1960 masterpiece, La Ventura. And I think, you know, <laughs> thinking of those films doesn't do this one really, really any favours for me. I mean, it's just a little, a little too crude with its, with its symbolic gestures from the little kid that goes missing being dressed in a, you know, red and white tracksuit with his pale white face, you know, the colours of the Russian flag that are then... There's a certain shot at the end of the film that I won't kind of spoil that, you know, is a real kind of face palm of... Kind of is this crudity. the shot with the uh, running machine? The tracksuit, yeah, which yeah. is quite I didn't something. I find that objectionable. The, the, when you see the film, the tracksuit on the running machine. Didn't have a problem with it. But then, so basically, what you're suggesting is that Zviagin, 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 Zviagin,
The child uh, represents Russia. With, without too, doing too much of a digression, but Antonioni's great film, L'Aventura, mm. is just like this one is, about modern ennui or modern malaise. And just like in this film, in that one, uh, a bunch of couples, a bunch of friends are on a boat off the coast of Italy and one member of their party, Lea Masari, goes missing. And she, be- she stands for this kind of existential, spiritual void in the middle of the movie. But what makes L'Aventura, I think, one of the greatest films in all of cinema is that through the form and through the framing and through the way that he stretches time and space, he creates this kind of destabilizing, dislocating effect where you never really quite know where you are in relation to the characters, in relation to the, the narrative, even necessarily what he's saying or what it's meant to suggest. And Zviagintsev is doing something quite similar here, but all of those things that he's trying to do and what this kid represents is so specifically, quite crudely, I think, tied to a real specificity of narrative and theme and even genre as well, to the point where, you know, all of the answers are just quite kind of blatantly in, in kind of in front of you. I think. It is, no, you spoke about that really well. Thank, uh, oh, no, you should do this for a living. It's, it's <laughs> terrific. And I must see La Ventura now. This, as you say, quite a different approach in that there yeah. isn't any attempt to stretch time or space. It's almost like watching a, an autopsy. I've seen this mm. film described as, as basically he's taking almost a pathological look at the malaise that is laid low the, the, you know, the, the, the Russian corpus, as it and were. And don't get me wrong, he, he is a, a, an incredibly skillful director. Mm. So in terms of the, like, the nuts and bolts of it, you know, generating tension and, and the progression of narrative, I mean, he tells the story very, very skillfully and very clearly, and the midsection of the film, I think, is really impressive, if a little oppressive. I think also there are kind of charges. It's like there's the misanthropy that, and oppressiveness that hangs over the whole film. But I think, I, I think that one of the things that I found about this film that irked me is that there are these little junctures all the way through. So that there's this ser- the, these people searching for a child who essentially they don't really want to find because this couple actually want to go off and have new lives and this, the, the child is just a... As she mentions in the film, you know, was never really wanted in the first place. Constantly throughout the film, there's always, always the worst thing that happens does happen <laughs> to an almost parodic degree, like over and over again. Like everyone is worse than you think they are. The world is worse than you think it is. People are more cynical than you think you, they are. Mothers aren't the nice kind of swaddling and uh, educational people you think they are. It's so, I don't know if cynical is probably is the right word for it, but like, you want to take a bath after it because it's so, it's so kind of like you may as well go and walk yourself around the back of the barn and <laughs> and, and, and well that's funny I, I actually quite enjoyed this trip through someone else's misery <laughs> um, oh no that's the thing I think it's because I mean the film just to add context I mean it is officially now Oscar nominated endorsed by the Academy and he has sort of picked up many awards and I mean, uh, you know, I think this this film is very well liked, and um, mm. and you know, I I think I can see why. I mean, so okay, so it might be Antonioni for dummies like me, <clears throat> but I, I I kind of enjoy this. Should I see Leviathan as well? I like his early, still not funny ones. You know, the first three that he did, Elena, I think is his is his best. Yeah, there's film. one called Elena, which is which is, which is, which really, is really, really great. Right, okay, Elena. There's another film coming out, I think, in May or June called A Gentle Creature, which is another Russian film. 
and it was also in Cannes, and it somehow managed to be even more bleak than this one, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of funny in a way. Nice. Long, slow, bleak, oppressive. Oh, good, that's coming, right. coming out then. David, would you like to give your scores on Loveless? I'd probably say like three, because I wasn't that big a fan of Leviathan, and then probably two and two. I just didn't really... No? Didn't buy into that? Didn't, didn't like this one. Love for Loveless, man? I'd go four, because I really like his uh, first few films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess three when I was watching, because I think there is still a lot to admire there, and it wasn't until the second time I watched it that I kind Ooh. of smacked myself in the head and went, he's doing bloody love and sure. And that's when I really started disliking it. And then two, once I found Do that you, out. Okay, so that's a separate question, I guess, whether mm. repeated viewings should influence how you react to... Because most people still see films only once unless they have kids, in which case they see them again yeah. and again and again. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I definitely. Especially if a film has more to say on a on a yeah there's more that can be got out of it topically i definitely got more from phantom thread the second time did you mm, yeah. yeah likewise it okay. was a really really different film the second what, time. i was giving the example before of hot fuzz on a similar level to phantom thread of a film that i didn't actually enjoy the first time but now absolutely love has there been a film that you have radically changed your mind about in a positive sense didn't like it the first time and then dug it afterwards David, what about you? Oh. oh, yeah, I have, like, big time. In fact, I think we've, we've had this conversation on a podcast before because um, it's the film Death Proof. Oh, yeah. Uh, by the currently controversial <laughs> director Quentin Tarantino, which I uh, uh, hated the first time, really with a passion, and was, like, being really annoying and, like, asking people, why do you like this film? And, and, then, and then I saw it about um, maybe eight years later and, and what did you miss the first time that you got it it felt like more of an abstract film it's got this weird structure and it doesn't really have a story and doesn't tell you anything and, and actually i just love this kind of very simple two-part revenge setup that it had and lots more going on to it like stylistically and interesting film about his relationship to women as well so Ooh. um I think there are definitely directors where perhaps I haven't got the first one or or haven't appreciated the first one or two films of theirs that I've seen, but then once I've seen five or six or ten of them, and then I realise kind of what they're doing and where they're they're going with their stuff. You know, it took me a long time to get to loving Brian De Palma when I was like 18 to the point that I do now, and it's as soon as something clicks with with what game he's playing and then you realise that and then you go back to the earlier films that you'd seen before and you watch them through the realisation that you've made later then that I mean that was a revelation to me going oh, back right. to his films nice one has anyone here seen Blade 2? Blade any of the Blade films? yeah yeah <laughs> all right. you all have <laughs> yeah. I have now thanks to David choosing Blade 2. So um, coming up next, it's our film club offering, which is, in honor of Guillermo del Toro, Blade 2. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Late. Keep the blood pack. Light hammer. Verlaine. Priest. Snowman, Chupa, and Reinhardt. Hey, um, uh, me and the uh, gang were wondering. What was that? Can you blush? <laughs> oh, I get it. I see now. You've been training for two years to take me out. And now here I am. It's so exciting, isn't it? Blade, in Blade 2, Blade, played by Wesley Snipes, forms an uneasy alliance with the Vampire Council in order to combat the Reapers, who are feeding on vampires. Uh, uh, we've invited listeners' comments. What yeah. were they, Matt? Uh, I'm going to do this top one. I like this oh, one. Oh, you so, get the best one. Go on. <laughs> no, you go. No, you go. <laughs> okay, so Blade 2. My wife and I have an agreement when going to see movies. We take turns in choosing what films we see. After seeing Blade 2, my wife said it was so bad that the next five picks would be hers. Now, I quite like Blade 2. I thought it was silly, but good fun. And any mention of this film now instantly makes my wife angry. And I was quite shocked to hear that the director of her worst film of all time is also the director of one of her favourite films of all time, Pan's Labyrinth. I like the fact that Blade 2 was so over the top and that it has a bros superstar rampaging through the film. Thanks for the great reviews. Cheers, yeah, Carl true. Carbett. Luke Goss. No, is it Luke or Matt? Luke Goss. Luke, Luke yeah. Goss. He owes you nothing. Yeah. David. Uh, Sophia. Has, has written in to say, I saw the first and second movie, but can't remember them in detail. I think I like the second one more than the first because the second one explored Blade's parentage and we got to meet his mum and dad. This isn't uh, this film. This is, I, uh, this She's talking <laughs> about a different film. <laughs> that's the first That's rubbish. Yeah, that okay, is. I'm going to read this one out from <laughs> Angus Davis. Didn't vet uh, that one, did we? Yeah. Uh, Angus <laughs> Davis says, I found it a bit dull. Apart from some juicy fight scenes choreography, which is very good to be fair, and gruesome Guillermo's little chopper horrors creature design, there's zero charisma from anyone on screen bar Carol Roden's brief appearance as a self-deprecating lawyer and absolutely no character development to speak of. Uh, Karen Roden with the line when he's asked, are you human? He says, barely, I'm a lawyer. (laughs) I I enjoyed that anyway. Uh, So uh, maybe one of the better turn-of-the-century vampire flicks says Angus. Any other comments from people who have actually seen the film? No? No, no, no. no. All right, gentlemen at the back then. (laughs) My name's James. I'm not sure I've got anything witty to say about the film, but um, I was sort of disappointed when I saw it when I was younger that they didn't keep all the blood and gore from the first film. 
And then on rewatching it, I think visually it's a much more interesting way of dealing with vampires and dealing the, with the, the death. way they explode with light. Exactly, it's almost mm. the opposite of what you expect. And it, I thought it was really interesting on rewatching it. But there's that autopsy scene as well, which is like really heavy going. Yeah, but no. it doesn't count in if they're dead already. I guess. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's the violent deaths. Sure. Uh, Guillermo del Toro regularly runs into plagiarism. There certainly is that with The Shape of Water, that there's been a claim that he's lifted the story from somewhere else. I mean, it's assembled from a series, The Shape of Water, of, of kind of well-known tropes, whether it's Beauty and the Beast or Black Lagoon or any of those things. But in this one, there's a good third of the movie that is taken almost shot for shot from Aliens. The vampires themselves do have the little kind of H.R. Geiger kind of succubus thing going on mm. when they're sort of... Just to sort of give a visual to people who haven't seen it, the Reapers have a little kind of line down their chin. And when you first see it, you think it's a kind of trendy, middle European tribal tattoo thing going on. But then they get close to people and their entire sort of chins fan out. It's a bit like one of those cargo ships. It's a fairy and a chameleon mixed together. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) How nice. No, no, praying mantis. Sorry, not praying mantis. Yeah. Yeah. Just to explain also the difference between the vampires and the reapers are the vampires... You know, they need a certain amount of blood to sustain themselves. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's like once a day in in this world. It's like a little bit occasionally. But the Reapers, they're kind of genetically modified and they're like, they need blood like all the time. It's a bit like a drug. Is it a Brexit analogy? It's (laughs) it's Brexit (laughs) with drugs. And... um, and Matt Goss's character, who's Goss. the, 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 sorry, Luke Goss's character, the, the main baddie, he's a kind of junkie, martial arts junkie, <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> um, that's me, I'm done. It's, <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of anom- yeah. anomalous, this, this film, in um, Del Toro's 10 movie. Would you say so? Because it's funny, I saw, the, sorry to interrupt, Matt, I saw this this afternoon, most of it anyway. And uh, one thing that struck me was how close a lot of the visual design is to The Shape of Water. Well, what I was going to say was it's, it's anomalous because it's the only one, it's a, it's a director for hire gig. It's, oh. it's the only one that he hasn't originated and written himself. So it's written by David, David Goya. Goya. But what's amazing about it, as you were saying, is the fact that even with a film that he hasn't written and a, you know, a project that he hasn't originated, this is Wesley Snipes' baby, he still manages to put in all of these kind of auteurist uh, thematic things that he keeps doing in all of his movies. You know, this whole idea with the two tribes of vampires of kind of cultural and ideological primacy that's, that's in all of the films, whether it's Keiju versus Jaeger or, you know, insect versus human and, and so on. And I think in the, um, in the sort of crucifixion of Blade at the end, when he gets tied to that table and all the spikes through him, you get one of del Toro's kind of defining images there, which is that whole kind of conflagration of the kind of profane and the divine. I suspect that if you read del Toro talking about this film, even though I, th- I think that he, he, is, he has said that he is, um, it's not one of his favorite among his canon because mm-hmm. it's, you know, he ha- doesn't have that kind of close connection to it. I'm sure that he will talk to the cows come home about all the um, the references and and the the links and I spent the afternoon reading up on it and just the amount of little 
things in the backdrop like oh yeah there's a sign on a club in the background that references like Vlad the Impaler who was like the original vampire you know like, and it, it, it's loaded with all this stuff I mean he you know he's taken it as a canvas and just run with it and is it in his top five movies probably not but it's probably what I, is I, in his it's top five re- movies it's really fun he can do a great comic book movie I think do you and know this what is... I really liked about this actually and this is this is a, a weird thing but like so it's got this guy Donnie Yen in it, who is a, who is a big kind of martial arts. Is he from Hong Kong? Or? I think so. Yeah, yeah. and and he's um, in uh, Rogue One. He's in Rogue yeah. One as well. Yeah. Yes, and um, he's also got Norman Breedus. Is it from Walking uh, Dead? Walking Dead. In in, an yeah. early and Chris Christopherson from A Dolphin's Tale. Chris Christopherson yeah. and Convoy. Yeah, and Convoy. Oh, yeah. 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 And, yeah. Yeah. and Wesley Snipes from and Prison. Yeah. <laughs> 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 So they have they have all these I think really great fight scenes, but they also mix the kind of the kung fu with with like wrestling as well, like sort of WWF wrestling. Like he they do like off the top turnbuckle kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I, I love that. Like just let's throw some wrestling in there as well, you know. Blade's like a martial artist, and he also knows wrestling. <laughs> Damn. It's, it's, you don't get that in Antonio, <laughs> do you? No. You, you, you don't. I think, you know, that's something that we've perked up Loveless as well, just wrestling vampires. More wrestling. <laughs> yeah. Vampires. All right, well, uh, thanks for that. Uh, can we get a top five Del Toro? For me, yes. it would be Pacific Rim, Ooh. probably Shape of Water, mm-hmm. probably then Kronos, mm-hmm. then um, Devil's Backbone, and then Blade 2. <laughs> no, yeah. Matt uh, Shape of Water at one Pacific Rim Devil's Backbone Crimson Peak and Hellboy 2 really yeah. oh yeah sorry no Hellboy 2 instead of Blade 2 that just pips it wow okay you guys are you, are you big Del Toro fans at all should we just waft a microphone let's, over there? Let's make, let's make a case for some of his Yeah, also for titles. Pan's Labyrinth, which I love. It's the only film of his that I really get into, because otherwise I think stylistically they're fine, but I just feel a bit empty about them. But it's all about you, sorry, not me. What do you um, think? Well, I don't like Kronos. Sorry. Um, sorry. We're, yeah, that's a problem. Um, <laughs> um, but Pan's Labyrinth I love, and I love it more for the human aspect of it and I know you said about the the violence and stuff I don't particularly like body horror stuff sometimes I squirm at you know ears falling off and things like that in in zombie films, in zombie films and blah, blah blah but um yeah no in Pan's Labyrinth I actually think that's one of his best ones because you care so much about the people in the, you know you know and you want you want them not to be discovered and yeah, so that's why Pan's Labyrinth for me, but I shy away from the more Devil's Backbone Kronos stuff because it's icky. <laughs> the horror, sorry, that's the reason why, you, like the human characters, the reason why the horror makes it shocking in Pan's Labyrinth, and that's, that's why I think it works really well. And now we're going to have an argument. When we can. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just to fill you in on the fact that Michael Jackson apparently was originally going to have a cameo in the House of Pain sequence, which I think that's when they first go into the vampire House world. of Pain sequence. They, they, yeah. That's the name of the club they kind of infiltrate oh. and they were oh, all dancing yeah. to techno. In that kind of vaguely Matrix-esque sequence. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there you go. That was Blade 2. Uh, what are we going to have as our film club next week? If you, if you want to listen to next week's uh, Truth and Movies, if you want to watch whatever this is that David's about to say... 
and then let us know your thoughts and you can participate. So the, the film in next the conversation. week, yeah. um, it's, I haven't actually seen this film. Okay. Uh, but I know about it and, I, and, I, and I, from what I understand, it's, it's great. Uh, but it's linked with the release of Black Panther and it's a film called Space is the Place which is a movie that's part of, of what's called the Afrofuturism movement in cinema. This is Jimmy Fay, Channel 5 Stone Jive, the all-black station for all black people with all the news that grooves at noon, live from Oakland, California. <laughs> As you are probably aware, several local mystics have predicted a landing from space this afternoon here at this spot opposite the Sector 5 government building in the person of a black musician and thinker named Sun Ra. I haven't seen him yet. He should be here any time now. He's reported to have disappeared while traveling in Europe in June 1969. He's reputed to have been traveling in outer space all this time with his intergalactic mid-science solar orchestra. And upon landing here, will reveal to the world his so-called plan for the salvation of the black race. Where the hell is he? It is now a couple of minutes past the time when Mr. Rye is scheduled to appear, so apparently he's not quite as efficient as our own NASA program people. Is Black Panther an Afrofuturistic film? Uh, well, from what I've seen so far, Ryan Coogler has said that his main reference point is that era of cinema. So, okay. Which yeah. era of cinema is well, that? Well, it's kind of like mainly 70s and 80s, and it's films that mix traditional African dress and his- history and, uh, and iconography with kind of like science fiction. Okay. So that extends yeah. beyond cinema as well, doesn't it? Into music yeah, it's, and it, art. it's music, art. It's a bigger movement than cinema, so... Have you seen Space as a Place? No. Okay. No, no, no. So we're all going to go into a little venture, an adventure for next week. Space is the Place is our film club. The films that you will be reviewing, I'm not around next week, are Black Panther and Lady Bird. Just as a little sneak preview for the lovely people who come along this evening. How good is Lady Bird? Good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Don't want to spoil it for next week. All right. I mean, geez. All right. Yeah, it's good. It's good. There was a lot of fuss about its 100% Rotten Tomatoes rating and that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, okay. Excellent. Do get watching and let us know your thoughts by sending them to truthandmovies at tcolondon.com for emails, Twitter at LWLies, or find us on Facebook. Anything else, David? No, like that's me. That's me. That's done. you done? Matt? Going to go back home with Blade 2. Oh, yeah. splendid. Some vampire well, listen, thank you ever so much, everybody, for being with us. Thanks to everyone listening there at home, but especially thanks to everyone who's been with us and everyone who participated and uh, gave us the benefit of their thoughts on these films. Many thanks to Shoreditch House for hosting us. We apparently will be back next month, so look out for notices in the urinals about that. <laughs> or if you can't wait that long, then... Uh, the podcast will be up next week talking about Black Panther and so much more. Many thanks for your patience and have a lovely evening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 